What causes men to disobey God? That's what we're going to be talking about tonight, and we're going to look into the life of King Saul in the book of 1 Samuel. You remember when you go back into 1 Samuel chapter 8 and verse 7, the people had rejected Samuel from being their leader. Give us a king so we can be like the nations round about us. And uh, God uh, decided he would do that. He selected Saul to be the king, but they rejected God. This was not God's uh, original plan. They were disobedient unto him. In chapter 13 of 1 Samuel, you find that about the second year of the reign of Saul, that he decides that he's going to, uh, there's going to be a, a war, there's going to be a battle. The Philistines are gathering together, and they're going to fight against Israel, and they have 30,000 men, a chariots, in verse 5, 6,000 horsemen, the people as the sand which is on the seashore in multitude. Now, when we think about this, this is, this is another lesson, but why are the Philistines still there? Weren't they told to utterly drive out the inhabitants of the land? Had they obeyed God to start with, here are some problems that could have been avoided. And isn't that typical? When we don't obey God, it comes back to haunt us, doesn't it? We have to deal with that at a later time. It's a very large army, and the people of Israel are scattered. They're fearful. They're running. In uh, 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 4, Saul didn't have a little tiny army. He had an army of 210,000 men. But the battle doesn't always go to the biggest army, does it? They needed to remember back when the children of Israel were in Egypt and how that they were slaves and had no military training but God, through that series of plagues, they were delivered, and the Egyptians pursue after them, and the waters are parted. They go on the other side on dry land. The soldiers come in. The wall of water collapses and kills them. They need to remember Gideon in the book of Joshua, where God said, you have too many soldiers. Uh, I don't know about you, but uh, if I was in a battle, just from a military standpoint, I don't think you could have too many. If you outnumber the enemy 20 to 1, 40 to 1 would even be better, wouldn't it? A hundred to one would be even better. But God said, you've got too many. God wanted them to know that the battle was given by him, that it wasn't given by their military might and strength. So the people are scattered here in chapter 13. They're afraid. They're fearful. And Saul sees this. And in verse 8, he tarries seven days according to the set time that Samuel had appointed. But Samuel came not to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. And Saul said, Bring hither the burnt offering to me, and the peace offering. And he offered the burnt offering. Now think about what Saul has just uh, done on this particular occasion. In 1 Samuel chapter 9 and verse 1, Saul is of the tribe of Benjamin. That's not the Levitical tribe. He has no Bible authority for offering up a sacrifice. Even the Hebrew writer points that out in Hebrews chapter 7 when talking about Christ. He is of the tribe of Judah, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning the priesthood. That is, if Christ were here on earth and going to serve as a priest, he couldn't serve after the Levitical order. He's of the wrong tribe. But the writer goes into great detail to explain that Christ is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. 
But where is his authority for doing this? Who does he think he is in just setting aside the law of God? And notice the wording of the Bible in verse 9. After he offered the sacrifice, verse 10, it came to pass that as soon as he had made an end of the offering, the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came and Saul went out to meet him that he might salute him. He's supposed to be there in seven days. It's the seventh day. It's getting late in the seventh day, but it's still the seventh day. And Saul says, well, bring it to me. I'll do it. And he offers up the sacrifice. Just as soon as he had finished, Samuel shows up. If he'd have waited just a little bit longer. But no, he wanted to do it his way. He did not listen to God and do what God told him to do. Samuel said, what is this that thou hast done? And Saul does what so many people in the Bible and even today do. They try to justify why they've disobeyed God. Very few people ever just say, well, I did wrong, and I shouldn't have done that, and I'm sorry. Now, let me tell you why I did it. Well, this was the case, and then this, and this, and this, and here are the reasons why. And I even hear people today, when they do something that they shouldn't have done, they'll say, well, you'd have done the same thing if you'd have been in my shoes. Well, what does that prove? If it was the wrong thing, and I'd have done the same thing that you did, then we'd have both done the wrong thing. That's what it proves. That, that's no justification to say, well, you'd have done the same thing. What is this thou hast done? He said, uh, well, I saw that the people were scattered, and thou camest not within the days appointed. Well, that's not true. He did come in the days appointed. And that the Philistines gathered themselves together at Michmash. And notice verse 12, toward the end of that, he says, I forced myself, therefore, and offered a burnt offering. Poor old Saul. He had to force himself to disobey God. He didn't want to disobey God, but he had no other choice but disobeying God. That's, that's what he's arguing. That's what he's reasoning. <clears throat> and I want us to notice, <clears throat> as we study through the life of Saul, the contrast in the life of Saul and in the life of David. We're going to notice two occasions where Saul does the wrong thing and tries to justify it and argues and and talks all about it, complains about it and whatnot. And when David committed his sin with Bathsheba, I know at first there he tried to hide it. But when the prophet Nathan came to him and told him, Thou art the man, he didn't start blaming Bathsheba. He didn't say it's her fault. David said, I have sinned. I have sinned. And that's what Saul should have done. So he says, I forced myself. And then Samuel says in verse 13, Thou hast done foolishly. Thou hast not kept the commandments of the Lord which he commanded thee. Anytime we fail to obey God, we do foolishly. We play the fool. You know, the Bible talks about the fool a lot. The fool has said in his heart there is no God. And the fool sets aside what God says and does what he wants to do and then tries to justify it in the sight of God. And that, of course, doesn't work at all. And then if you look down verse 13 and 14, there's consequences for his sin. There's always consequences for your sin. He said that the kingdom uh, will be taken from you. You, you. Your heirs might have been king. There have met, might have been a Saul as the first king and his son the second king. And then his son the third king and the fourth king. There might have been a dynasty there, four or five kings. But because what he's done, no, I'm taking it from you and I'm going to give it to someone uh, that will listen to me, someone after my own heart. 
Well, you would think from looking here in chapter 13 that Saul has learned his lesson. He has acted foolishly. He has set aside the word of God and disobeyed God. Surely he'll never do anything like that again. Let's turn over to chapter 15. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, <clears throat> he is told to hearken, to listen to the voice of the Lord, listen to what God says. And verse 3, he is to go smite Amlek and utterly destroy all the house. Now I want you to watch how this is worded. Could anybody misunderstand this? Smite Agag, the Amalekites, utterly destroy all that they have, spare them not, but slay both man and woman, infant, suckling, ox, sheep, camel, donkey. That, that's everything, isn't it? Don't spare anything. That's pretty clear. He could have just said, kill everything, and that would have been good enough. But he says, kill everything. I mean these and these and these and the animals and the people. Now, what, what's the background for this? A lot of times when we're studying the Bible, and we run across a verse like this, we don't uh, do any research and find out the background. Somebody may say, well, that seems awful harsh. That's awful cruel for God to want these people killed. What is the background for that? Well, turn back with me to Deuteronomy chapter 25. Deuteronomy chapter 25 and verse 17. As there in the land, they're told, remember what Amalek did unto thee by the way. When thou came forth out of Egypt, how he met thee, by the way, and smote the hindmost of thee, that is, the rear ranks, even all that were feeble behind thee, when thou wast faint and weary, and he feared not God. Therefore it shall be, when the Lord thy God hath given thee rest from all thine enemies round about, in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance to possess it, that thou shalt blot out the remembrance of Amlek from under heaven, thou shalt not forget it. Here's a solemn charge God gives to his people. Now, when you get in the land, and when things sort of calm down, you get settled, I want you to remember what Amlek did. And what did he do? Here's this army, and it's got civilians in the back. It's got women and children and elderly and sickly. And instead of the Amalekites meeting the army head on and soldier fighting soldier, they go around to the rear ranks and attack the sick and the elderly and the women and the children. You know, every civilized society for years and years and years has had a code of ethics in war. <clears throat> war is bad, but soldiers don't just go in and just kill anybody and everybody. There's, there's a code of ethics. Soldiers can get court-martialed for killing civilians and innocent people. They're supposed to fight soldier fighting soldier. So God is going to punish these wicked people. And certainly God, who is a just God and a righteous God, has the right to punish individuals. He can punish people while they're alive, as he did many nations. And certainly he'll punish the wicked eternally when this life is over. So there's the background of destroy Agag and the Amalekites. Well, that's very plain. It'd be hard to misunderstand what happened. Or what was said. Now let's look at what Saul did. That was the, that was the instructions of what he was supposed to do. Verse 8, chapter 15. He takes Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. And Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fatlings and of the lambs and all that was good. Now what does that entail? 
What's involved in that? All that was good. Is that gold and silver? And is that clothing? And I, I don't know what that is. All that is good. And he would not utter destroy them. But everything that was vile and refuse, that they destroyed utterly. What, what are, when we read these verses and look at this, what did Saul just do? He did what he wanted to do. God said, go over there and do it this way. He looked at what God said and said, no, I think I'll do it this way, my way. I think my way is better than God's way. And people have been doing that since the beginning of time, and they're still doing it today. They're looking at what God said to do and say, no, I don't think I'll do it that way. I think I'll do it a different way. Couldn't be any clearer. And then look what Saul does. You kill Agag, the Amalekites, you kill everything. No, I think I'll bring them back. I think I'll bring the best of the sheep and the oxen. And I think I'll take all that is good, as we said, whatever that involves, gold, silver, whatever. And I'll bring that back. That's what I'll do. And then Samuel sees what's taking place down in verse 10 and verse 11. And uh, he, uh, the Lord said to him, It repenteth me that I have set up Saul to be king, for he is turning back from following me and hath not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried unto the Lord all night. So God tells Samuel that Saul didn't do what he said. Now Samuel is going to go tell Saul that you didn't do what God said. And he goes and tells him, and now look at what Saul says in verse 13. Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said unto him, Blessed be thou of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. What? I have done what the Lord told me to do, Samuel. I have obeyed the Lord. No, you haven't. You haven't done what the Lord told you to do. You've, did, you've done what you wanted to do. And Samuel said, What meaneth this, the bleating of the sheep in my ears, and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? Simply put, Samuel says, Dead animals don't make these sounds. You say you've obeyed the voice of the Lord? Well, the voice of the Lord was to kill Agag and all the sheep and all that. And I, I'm hearing sheep and I'm hearing oxen. Dead animals don't make those noises. If you had obeyed the voice of the Lord, I wouldn't be hearing anything. So these animals are calling you a liar, Saul, by making these noises. Well, I, I've done what the Lord said. Uh, he said, they, now notice he's trying to shift responsibility, they have brought back them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God, and the rest we have utterly destroyed. The, the people did. Well, who's in charge of the people? Aren't you the king? Yes. It was his responsibility. He's the leader, and he was supposed to do what God said, and now he's arguing and saying, but I have done what the Lord said. But no, he hasn't. And Samuel said to him in verse 16, Stay, and I will tell thee what the Lord hath said to me this night. And he said to him, Say on. And Samuel said, When thou wast little in thine own sight, wast thou not made the head of the tribes of Israel? And the Lord anointed thee king over Israel. And the Lord sent thee on a journey and said, Now, now look what's taking place. He told him what to do. And then God reminds Samuel that he didn't do what you said do. And then he confronts Saul, and Saul says, I have done what you said to do, but he didn't. And now he's telling him again. 
The Lord sent you and told you to utterly destroy the sinners of the Amalekites and fight against them until they're utterly consumed. Wherefore didst thou not obey the voice of the Lord, but didst fly upon the spoil and didst evil in the sight of the Lord? Now after all of that, look at Saul's response. Verse 20. And Saul said unto Samuel, Yea, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. And I have gone the way which the Lord sent me, and have brought back Agag, king of the Amalekites, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. He still is arguing and saying, I have obeyed what God told me to do. Think about that and how sad that is. And in his mind... He is so loose and so casual with what God said, perhaps he is thinking, what difference does it make if you kill him over there or kill him over here? At the end of the day, he's just as dead. What difference does it make if you kill all those sheep and lambs, all of that, uh, oxen over there, or you bring them back and kill them here? What difference does it make? Well, the difference is you're not doing what God said to do. That's not obeying God. That's not what obedience looks like he explains it to him and he goes on and tells him in verse 22 Samuel said hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and in sacrifice as in obey you think you can impress God by offering up thousands of sheep and oxen in sacrifice is that what God wants or does God want our obedience what does God want from you does he want you to obey him or put a million dollars in the collection plate next Sunday which is he more concerned about. He wants your obedience, doesn't he? He wants you to do what he says do and not try to do these other things and try to justify it. As, as he delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices and obeying the voice of the Lord, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and hearken than the fat of rams. Now he's still telling him his problem. He says, for rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord He shall also reject thee from being king. Now, after about three or four rebukes, and after being told the word of God several times, he finally says in verse 24 what he should have said in the very beginning. He says, I have sinned. I have sinned. And he had. He had sinned against God. These two events in the life of Saul give us some insights on what's involved in disobeying God. And I want us to... Expand upon that a little bit further. What causes men to disobey God? Number one, pride causes men to disobey God. Remember in chapter 15, verse 17, the prophet said, When thou wast little in thine own eyes. And if you go back, you see earlier in the book when the prophet came and Saul was selected to be king, he said, Well, I'm of one of the smallest tribes and my families are, I'm a family of nobodies and you want me to be king? Well, I'm not worthy, was his attitude. A lot has changed in his attitude since then and now. Now he's saying, well, I'm not the, kid, I'm not the priest, but I'm the king and I, I can offer a sacrifice. I'll do that. And now his <clears throat> attitude is, well, God said do it this way, but you know, my way's better. Instead of killing him over there, I'll bring him back over here and we'll do it this way. My way's better than God's way. Pride. Pride was one of his problems. In the book of Proverbs, excuse me, chapter 
chapter 6 and verse 16. We're familiar with this verse. These six things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven are abomination unto him. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, feet that be swift in running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among the brethren. What's the first one named? A proud look. Pride tops the list of the things that God hates. What can a prideful person do in service to God? How useful is a prideful person to God? Not very useful, are they? Because they're not going to listen to God. They're not going to do what God said because they know more than God. Proverbs 16, verse 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before, the, before a fall. That word haughty in the original language carries with it the idea of arrogant. A haughty spirit, an arrogant spirit. Do you see an arrogant spirit in Saul? Well, bring me the sacrifice. I'll offer the sacrifice. Samuel said he'd be here. He's not here. He can't keep his word. I'll do it. And then as soon as he offered the sacrifice, he shows up. Go kill Agag and the Amalekites. Kill them all. No, I think it would be better to bring him back and do it over here. I think that's the best way to do it. Very prideful. Set aside what God says and do what he wants to do. In Proverbs 29 and verse 23, a man's pride shall bring him low. It did Saul, didn't it? It brought him very low. Romans chapter 12 and verse 3, the Bible says a man is not to think more highly of himself than he ought. There is a healthy, positive self-image mentioned in that verse. We're not to view ourselves as junk and we're worthless. And, and that causes a lot of people to just want to end their life because they're no value to anybody. No. No, we're of value, but we ought not to be arrogant. We ought not to say, well, I'm better than everybody else and my way is better than God's way. Matthew 5, 5, blessed are the meek. Jeremiah 6 and verse 16, when they were talking about the old paths and the old ways and to look for those and walk in those, the people said, we will not. There's pride. God says, do this. We will not. We're not going to listen to you. We're not going to do what you said. In 1 Timothy 3 and verse 6, looking at the qualifications of elders, not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, a man fall into condemnation of the devil. Even Leaders are cautioned there about pride and how that can uh, cause them to fall in the condemnation of the devil. Look at church history on that very point. Where did denominationalism come from? Did denominationalism come from atheists? Did denominationalism come from Buddhists or Hindus? Where did denominationalism come from? It came from men who were lifted up with pride and decided that I'm going to be the chief elder over this congregation and I'm going to be the chief elder over this diocese. I'm going to be the chief elder over this state. Until Boniface said, I'm going to be the chief elder over all the church. I'm going to be the Pope. Denominationalism came from the Lord's church. That's how it got started. Because of the pride of some individuals. We are to resist these things. God resists the proud. In James 4 and verse 6, he resists the proud. We don't want to be anything that God resists. Looking at this particular point, pride causes men to disobey God. Another point is looking to yourself as authority and not respecting God's authority causes men to disobey God. You can't look to yourself 
as authority. Remember the statement that's found in the book of Judges many, many times. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. How'd that work out for him? Not so good, did it? They got in trouble every time and were oppressed, and then God would send a deliverer. They would be delivered, then they'd go back to doing that very same thing again. Saul, having no authority on two different occasions, sets aside God's authority and does what he pleased, did what he wanted to do. And that, of course, is not good. He tried both times to justify his disobedience rather than just when he was confronted saying, yes, I did wrong. Well, here's why I did that. And, and you'd have done the same thing if you'd have been in my shoes. And, and I'm not really that bad of a person because of this and this and this, trying to justify, trying to justify what he had done. To set aside God's authority is to act foolishly. Always, always. In Jeremiah 10 and verse 23, it's not in man that walketh to direct his own steps. We, we can't do that. We can't come up with our own plan. We can't come up with our own plan of salvation. We can't come up with our own uh, way to live. We can't come up with our own pattern for worship. Mark 7, 7, how be it in vain do they worship me, teaching for their doctrine the commandments of men. There is never justification for disobeying God. Never. We're never justified by setting aside what God said. Well, circumstances requires that I do this. No. Circumstances require that you obey God and do what he says, even if it costs you your life. You have to obey God and keep his commandments and do his will. In Colossians 3 and verse 17, we're to do all in the name of or by the authority of the Lord. Saul certainly did not do that. 1 Peter 4 verse 11 says, If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. Saul didn't do that. He set aside the oracles of God. Another point to think about is substitution is not obeying. The Bible is filled with illustrations where men substituted. One of the first we read about was the worship of Cain and Abel. Hebrews 11 says, By faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. Romans 10, 17 says, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. So God told Cain and Abel what he wanted them to offer. Abel offered what God said. He did it by faith. Cain substituted and said, well, I'll do it my way. I think this is just as good. Maybe this is better. That didn't work out very good for him either, did it? He disobeyed God. Substitution is not obedience to God. We read about a man in the Old Testament in the book of Kings, in 1 Kings chapter 12, uh, by the name of Jeroboam. He's often referred to as Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who caused Israel to sin. He pulled away the ten tribes and goes up north, and immediately he sets up false gods. And if you look at uh, 1 Kings chapter 12, beginning with about verse 28, he makes these two golden calves and sets them up. says, it's too far for you to go down to Jerusalem to worship. He offered the people a religion of convenience. You ever hear anything about that? a religion of convenience in the time in which we live. And then uh, he sets up one at Dan and he sets up one at Bethel. He also made men to be priests. He, he set up he priests. And he set up men that were of the lowest estate. And he ordained a feast in the eighth month. 
on a certain day. So he changed the place of worship. He changed the object of worship. He changed the time of worship. He changed the priesthood. He made all those changes without any authority from God. And why did he do it? Where is his authority for doing it? And what motivated him to do it? Verse 33, 1 Kings chapter 12, the latter part of that, which he devised of his own heart. He said, I think that's the way it ought to be done. Doesn't that sound like modern day religion? Well, I think we ought to call ourselves this. I think we ought to meet on this day. I think we ought to take the Lord's Supper once a year instead of every Sunday. I think this ought to be our plan of salvation. I think this ought to be the way we worship God. Where's your authority? Well, we devised of our own imagination. We just set it up because that's the way we want to do it. That didn't work very well. It doesn't work very well. And then you see that arguing with God is not obedience. When we do something wrong, you know, as parents, that's a lesson we have to teach our children. When they do something wrong, and then they're going to try to stand there and argue with us for 30 minutes and justify what they did, usually the parents just say, I've heard enough, just be quiet. You've not done what I told you to do, and there's consequences for that. And we don't want to hear this long, drawn-out why you did it. You just didn't do what I told you to do, and therefore you disobeyed. Samuel attempts, or Saul rather, attempts to justify what he had done. He says, I have performed the commandments of the Lord. I have obeyed the voice of the Lord, but he, he hadn't. And then he's going to argue with Samuel that he had obeyed. Arguing with God's word is nothing new. In fact, Matthew chapter 7 tells us that on the day of judgment, many are going to do that. Not everyone that saith to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But many will say unto me that day, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and thy name cast out devils, and thy name done wonderful works or mighty works? And then he'll say to them, Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. I've never knew you. Here's a scene of the day of judgment where somebody stands before God, and God says, No, you don't get to go to heaven. You're condemned. And that person, in essence, says, Wait, wait a minute. Wait a minute. You need to recheck your books. You need, to, you need to look again. Because I was a very religious person. And I gave a lot of my money, and, and I went every time the doors were, and I did a lot of good work. You better check your books. I think you've made a mistake. I'm, I'm supposed to be with the sheep, not over here with the goats. Doesn't do any good to argue with God, does it? Anybody ever win an argument with God? <laughs> no. Will anybody ever win an argument with God? No. So that's not obeying God. That's not doing the will of God. And also we see in this account, there were consequences for his actions. Consequences for his action. The kingdom would be taken from him. The kingdom would be taken from his descendants. And he would not be able to serve. And his family wouldn't be able to be served in that position again. When we look at these chapters, chapter 13 and chapter 15, it helps us to have a better understanding of what disobedience looks like. Be careful. We need to be careful and not let pride enter our hearts. What are we looking to as our authority? Are we looking to parents, ourselves, creeds of men, religious leaders, human reasoning? What are we looking at as our authority? If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God, 1 Peter 4, verse 11. When we read these chapters today, sometimes people say, how could Saul 
be so blind? How could, how, how could Saul do what he did and then try to justify what he did? How, how in the world? I just can't understand that. And they, they sort of scratched their head. Really? Let's, let's think about that. When you look to the Bible and see everything that the Bible says about the church, Matthew 16, 18, Christ promised to build his church and the gates of hell wouldn't prevail against it. Acts 20 and verse 28, Christ purchased the church <clears throat> with his blood. Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, the church is the body of Christ. Ephesians 4, 4, there is one body. In view of what all the Bible says about the church, men come along and say, what difference does it make? One's just as good as another. You, you want to argue with me about your church and my church? What difference does it make? They're, they're all just alike. They're all going to heaven. Really? Ask Saul. Does it really matter who offers the sacrifice? If you're of the tribe of Levi, if you're a priest, or if you're of the tribe of Benjamin, it really doesn't matter as long as you offer the sacrifice. It does, doesn't it? It doesn't really matter if you kill Agag over there or you bring him over here and kill him. At the end of the day, he's just as dead, isn't he? Well, that's true. He's just as dead. But if you kill him over there, you do what God said. You bring him over here, you disobey God. So there is a difference. There is a difference. So people today are similar. When you see what the Bible says about baptism, Mark 16, 16, He that believes is baptized should be saved. He that believes not should be condemned. Acts 2, 38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the name of Christ for the remission of sins. Acts 22, 16, Why tearest thou? Rise and be baptized, and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. 1 Peter 3, 21, Romans 6, 4, host of other passages, what it says about baptism. What does man do? He comes along and says, What difference does it make? Yeah, the Bible talks about baptism, but if you're baptized as a baby, that's just as good. And when it comes to baptism, if you're sprinkled, poured, or immersed, that's just no, no difference. And baptism is baptism. Some say that you should be baptized before you're saved, and others teach that you're baptized after you're saved. What difference does it make? At the end of the day, you still got under the water and got wet, didn't you? But it makes a big difference, doesn't it? It makes a big difference because when you do it, one particular way, you're doing what the Bible says. And all these other ways, you're not doing what the Bible says. Are we going to obey God? Or are we going to do like Saul and say, well, I think and I feel and I believe and I'm going to do it this way, which we shouldn't do. When it comes to worship, in John 4, 24, God is spirit. They that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Colossians 3, 17, Ephesians 5, 19. Uh, Colossians 3, 16, Ephesians 5, 19. Tell us that we're to sing and make melody in our hearts. And what do men do? They come along and say, what difference does it make? When we use the instrument, we're still singing. I remember reading a story about uh, Midway, Kentucky, when they brought in the organ for the first time in the services of the Churches of Christ. And they said that their singing was so bad that the rats ran from the building when the congregation started singing. And they decided they'd bring in that organ and that would help drown out some of that horrible singing. Well, it may have drowned out the horrible singing, but they added a different kind of music, didn't it? It's a different. Just like Saul. He said, I'll be the one. I'll offer the sacrifice. No. No, that's not, that's not what God said to do. Well, I'll kill him over here instead of over there. No, you're not obeying God when you do it that way. It does matter how we worship. God has never said during the patriarchal age, the mosaical age, or the Christian age, he has never said, do something and call it worship. He has never said, it doesn't matter what you do as long as you're honest and sincere in your heart. Ask Nadab and Abihu about that. 
Leviticus 10, who offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not. And there went out fire from heaven and devoured them. And they died in the presence of the Lord. There's God's attitude toward those who just set up their own system of worship and do what they want to do rather than obeying God. It does matter how we worship God. It does matter about the church. It does matter about the plan of salvation. It does matter about Christian living. We must learn to obey God and respect him rather than be like Saul. Will you obey God or will you be like Saul and just do what you want to do and then try to justify it and tell everybody why you did it and you'd do the same thing if you'd have been me, which is no justification at all. We need to be very careful what we do. We need to follow the pattern that's set forth in God's word and always be obedient. These passages help us to understand a little bit better of what disobedience looks like. And we don't want to be guilty of disobeying God. Tonight, if you're here and you have not obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ, we would point you to the word of God. It's not his will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 2 Peter 3 and verse 9. God doesn't want one person to be lost. He has done everything in his power for your salvation. He sent his son to die on the cross for every one of us. Even horrible, horrible sinners and horrible, horrible people. Christ died that they might have hope of eternal life if they'd be obedient to the gospel. When we read through the book of Acts, those examples of conversion... Faith, repentance, confessing the name of Christ and being baptized for the remission of sins. This is God's plan, not mine, not ours. It's God's plan. When we do that, he'll wash away our sins and add us to his church. And if we'll be faithful and do his will, heaven can be our home. Let's not be among the group that stands on the day of judgment and argues with God as to why we didn't do what he told us to do. Let's be among the group that he says, well done, Thy good and faithful servant, enter into the joy is prepared for you. If you're here and you're not a Christian, we urge you to obey. If you've wandered away from the Lord, we urge you to come back while we stand together and sing. Amen.